Welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles. Or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to Genetic Shambles. This is, I think it's, it, it might unofficially be the third in the series, uh, but we've we've certainly done three. But I think maybe only one of the, one of the other ones has been uh, official. So this is brought to you by, uh, amongst other things, Jeanette. Well, not amongst other things. In fact, the only people who bring it to you, apart from me and our producer Trent, are uh, the Genetic Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution, which is at the University of Bath. And uh, also, we should mention uh, another podcast that is uh, available, for, uh, which is genetics unzipped by uh cat arnie uh these podcasts that we're going to be doing going to be fortnightly and they're going to be looking at different ideas and different ways that we uh, are currently understanding and uh researching in uh, in the world of genetics today we're going to be looking at some of the well the the I suppose some what might seem initially some of the simpler questions in terms of some of the simpler definitions, but from that, of course, a tree of life will grow that will become increasingly complex uh, by the end of this episode. Uh, we should also mention Science Shambles Q&A, which is on every Sunday live at 3pm. Uh, and on that, people can send in questions live, and I can tell you tonight as well if you're watching now if you have got questions uh, about genetics about the human genome about other genomes as well uh, then uh, you can ask them and uh, Trent our producer will send them to me so today's guests are uh, first of all um, Sarah Teichman who is a head of cellular genetics at Welcome Sanger Institute uh, director of research Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge uh, co-founder and co-chair of the Human Cell Atlas Organising Committee and I was watching something about that earlier on and uh, that alone is utterly fascinating and I think would probably fill, well, it would fill a lot more than an hour. I mean, it's looking at every single cell in the human body, but we haven't fortunately got there yet, so we won't be dealing with every single one of the cells of the human body. We also have Gil McVeigh, who's the Chief, Chief Scientific, Scientific Officer, Officer at, at Genomics, Genomics PLC, PLC, a visiting professor at the University of Oxford. And uh, we have Adam Rutherford, who, uh, amongst other things, of course, on Radio uh, 4, is uh, the presenter of Inside Science, uh, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, and has just written uh, an excellent book, which is somewhere on my desk at the moment, which is How to Argue with the Race and also uh, I suppose his most uh, gene-specific book uh, would be Creation, uh, which is a flip-up book, basically, which is, uh, first of all, you read about the history and then you read about the future and you can just flip it over and they are done in reverse. So it is uh, a lot of fun to read uh, that book. Well, I mean, there's one bit of fun. You turn the book over and then it's just more <laughs> reading about stuff, you know. Um, but we are... <laughs> 
I'm being very flippant today, by the way, uh, because I realise that this is not going to be a flippant uh, podcast whatsoever. But I will tell you now that we will get, actually, I think, possibly later on to some of the discussion about genetics, which is in How to Argue with the Racist, because it is some of the misunderstandings uh, remain pertinent today and are still things which are, are, are thrown up a great deal. But I'm going to start off... Um, Sarah, if it's okay, I'd like to start with with you. And in fact, with everyone, you please feel free to to join in at times with the answers. Which is, we should start off with definitions. And it's nearly twenty years now, isn't it, since the the mapping of the human genome? Um, so, can you tell us what is a genome? What does that what what does that actually mean? It's the um, nucleic acid content that's inside every single cell and um, carries the information that encodes the the organism, basically, the cells and molecules um, in the organism. And it's basically, and, and so this is, I was talking with Paul Nurse the other day, and the, the thing that I find remarkable is that every single cell within the human body has the potential to remain living. So we could, we could in some ways, take every single cell you could you could slowly pick apart a human being the how many how many trillion is it again i can't remember now is it 300 trillion i may be 37 tr 37 Oh. estimated cells in a human being. Yeah. I have made a way too big human in my laboratory. <laughs> I've, gone, I've gone and used 300. Oh, ridiculous. But, um, but that, that seems to be so in every single cell, basically, we have the information to make that living thing again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in principle, that's correct. And so um, I'll ask you, Gil, then. So, so when we're also a definition of the gene itself, so when we're talking about uh, genes, and I, I know that one of the things that surprised, I suppose, the researchers when, when the human genome was mapped, that there were actually fewer genes than was imagined for something which is considered so complex. complex. Yes, I remember there being a sweepstake about how many genes there'd actually ever be uh, found in the human genome back at the time it was being sequenced, and estimates had been in the more like 100,000 range, but it turned out to be closer to 20,000 or something like that. Uh, the idea of a gene and the definition actually go way back, though. They, it really predates the, our ability to sequence DNA or, in fact, know anything about DNA at all. And the earliest definitions of genes are really about um, a, a point in a, in a sequence, uh, in an organism that can be mapped to a trait, such as flower color or the Mendel's traits on peas that he was studying. So it was, it, it was to do with inheritance, essentially. It's something that you can follow um, through the generations. And as our understanding of the molecular basis of those traits grew, so we began to understand, I think, that those that there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, clearly, between the things that we find in the genome and those traits, but there's a sort of proximal one-to-one -one correspondence in that there are bits of this genome that you can pull out, which encode for small bits of machines, typically proteins, sometimes RNAs, um, which act as part of this amazing machinery to make the cells that make the tissues and make the organs that ultimately make the individual. So it's the notion of the genome is really around trying to find these units w within this massive sequence of DNA, which are sort of independent in that you can pull them out and they they do a function although often they do many different functions 
Well, is that Adam? Because you you've quite often I've I've seen you uh, do presentations about misunderstandings, and certainly that's something that you've dealt with on some of the Radio Four shows. That there is that that idea of of the at one point the popular press, well, all the press, in fact, uh, were fascinated in the idea of a single gene for a single attribute, weren't they? To say that there is the gene for this, there is the gene for that. How, as, as, as Gil was just saying, that idea, though, is, is, is not true, is it? That you can't merely remove uh, one gene and say, ah, oh, that's the one that creates this particular uh, colour, curl in the hair or whatever. Or yeah, whatever. that's yeah, that's right. So this was a lot to do with the thing you just alluded to and the thing that, that Gil just said, which was that um, that betting um, book, which I've actually got a copy of right here. So this this page, I don't know whether you can see that, but this was the page uh, that Ewan Burney, who's the head of the Euro European Bioinformatics uh, Institute now, but he was a PhD student at the time, which was 20 years ago. So the announcement was in June the 26th, 2000, which was the, right, Bill Clinton and uh, Tony Blair and um, Craig Venter and tell me who the fourth one was, Gil. Um, sorry. Um, I, that, uh, Francis Collins was, yeah. oh, crikey, sorry. <laughs> to all the Ever since you did that alpha course, <laughs> anyone who attaches themselves to religion, you find it harder and harder to recall their name. It's a complete it's extremely blank. unfair. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, but but it was to do the, the the idea that 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 even the best geneticists in the world, human geneticists in the world, didn't really have a good grasp of the number of genes that we had was a lot to do with this very baked in idea in in both science and culture that there is this unit of inheritance and that is what we call a gene, and that for each characteristic there will be. A gene that encodes it and one of the things i argue in that book is that this this is something that emerges out of out of early genetics and um you know like uh, like like gil was saying mendel and his peas which we learn at school he, he had a very one-to-one -one relationship between uh, a unit of inheritance which would become known as the gene a few years later at the beginning of the 20th century and whatever the characteristic was like wrinkliness of skin or flower color whatever but I think it, the idea goes way, way much further back in time than that. And the way that we've been thinking about inheritance for literally thousands of years really does reinforce this idea that there is a, a, a thing, something which is transmissible in a sort of discrete way from generation to generation, uh, which we now call a gene. And it encodes specific things. So the earliest example I'm aware of is from the Talmud, uh, where there's a very accurate description of... Um, an inheritance pattern for, for a lethal disease, which is effectively the rabbis excusing sons from being circumcised at birth. And because of the pattern of inheritance that they describe, if your first son has died from bleeding at circumcision and your second one is in one cousin, then the, the children, the, the, the next son is exempt from circumcision. And we think that is now hemophilia. So this is an idea that is so baked into both culture and genetics that it, it truly was a revelation in, in 2000 when that betting book was done. And everyone was wrong. Some The, the, the highest estimate was out, out by an order of magnitude. The lowest was still out by about 7,000 genes. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what a gene actually is, how you, what that definition is. And m most of the rest of that page is, in fact, like caveat, your proper sciencey caveats to what is a gene. And so it, I think, well, I think that, you know, there was a moment where we sort of had to rethink the whole notion of 
how a genome translates into into a lived life, uh, specifically for for humans. Because, as you say, as you alluded to, genes don't do single things. They um, the, the the stuff that Sarah was alluding to at the beginning, they do stuff at specific times and in specific tissues, and all genes are present in all cells, or, or in all cells at some stage in their existence. And so you can't have them on all, all at the same time. They, they have to be switched off and regulated and turned on and turned on in, in these sort of cascades, these and circuits, in order that you can go from having all the information in every cell to only needing only having the information that you need to become, you know, a cell in the retina or a cell in your heart or or a hair follicle or, or you know all of this. So, Sarah, would it be fair to say that if you're writing a book, one of the most things that's beautiful about reading science books is how quickly they're out of date? You know, that's one of the things is sometimes I go back to books that I had as a child and I go, this is wonderful. This is why it's beautiful. And that in terms of areas that if you're thinking I don't want to keep rewriting this book, don't write about genetics for the time being. (laughs) <laughs> because it does, I, I imagine the twenty first century does seem to be that this this is the the, the century of a, of a, a, a truly new understanding and a journey to a new it's understanding. New understanding. Because one of the books that influenced me uh, a lot was the the Human Genome in Twenty Three Chapters, or you know something like that by by Matt Ridley. And now, you know, looking back at that now, twenty years later, um, roughly, it, it really is out of date. Um, but yeah, but it, you know was interesting at the time um so what, what you say is absolutely true um, so sorry sir yeah no i mean it it you know there'll, there'll, there'll be some truths but things do change things move on and, and it's an incredibly exciting field to be in because things are changing so rapidly at the moment and it's yeah. In, in terms of, of people like me who, you know, it, it, in no way have any area of specialization uh, in anything whatsoever, um, are, what are the things that people should be most aware of in terms of the changes in the last two decades? You know, someone because many people have on their shelves, they'll have books and they won't realize. That. I mean, one of the things that I remember a lot of people talking about was the change in understanding, for instance, of what was, you know, of junk DNA. Um. You know, there've you know there've been there've been a lot of revolution since the sequencing of of the human genome twenty years ago. Um, you know, and following on from from the human genome, there was um, human genetic diversity, which we've been alluding to. Which, in you know, in some ways, it's been you know there's been awareness since the Talmud, but it, but understanding that in a quantitative manner um, and in, and comprehensively. Both in terms of the genes and and the non-coding regions, you know, junk and uh, regulatory regions and so on, um, that's really changed over the last twenty years. I think completely, um, the uh, the understanding of equally of of somatic mutations, of you know, mutations in tumors, um, cancer genomics. Uh, that's really changed over the last you know 10 15 years um, with with you know much much better understanding of the the mutational processes the different types of tumors uh, so that that's genomics has, has provided a tool that's allowed an access to these different areas of, of basic science and 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 applied sort of genomic medicine in in incredibly new and powerful ways um, 
And then, of course, my area is um, gene expression genomics. So basically, how, where, when are the genes expressed? How are they regulated? Um, you know, how do how do cells transform along a, a developmental or differentiation pathway? Um, what are the the cell states? And and again, it's been you know technology developments in genomics that have allowed that to to um, to flourish into the field that it is today. And you know now we're moving into spatial genomics where we can actually sequence uh, you know in in a very dense way a tissue section sort of almost down to single cell resolution. Uh, and so it's and, and that's giving us new insights into the microenvironments in tissues and how cells relate to each other, uh, you know, in, in, in incredible detail, which is throwing open new understanding of, of uh, actually the structure and architecture of human tissues with genomic technologies, with the human genome sequence itself kind of being the foundation for the, the human work. But um, there is also the area, uh, as you mentioned, uh, kind of at the very beginning about other genomes and how the human genome relates to, you know, our, our primate relatives, non-human primate and um, mammals and, and, and then other sections of the tree of life. And, and so that, I think that's been incredibly, you know, that's been tra completely transformed as well by genomics and um, you know, initially the Human Genome Project and then genomics more generally. So, yeah, so I think that uh, there, there are many, many different areas that have um, have sort of been ripped open and, and transformed over the last 20 years. So, and, 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 and yeah, so our knowledge is changing, the textbooks are being rewritten, and it is incredibly exciting. So generally, what we would say is if you have a book about which is called Your Guide to Genetics and the date in the beginning is 1997, you need to update, you need to find a new one. Um, uh, Gil, I wanted to ask you about this is in, in terms of our understanding of of nature and nurture, which, of course, I always know it's a very, you know, it, well, increasingly it's that beautiful bit of science where it seems to get more blurred that, you know, that there, there was a point certainly in some conversations, I, I, I think in the, in the media, which was this, this idea that, that genes were our destiny. And now it seems to be an understanding that they are a probability, but there are, and how, how are we able to understand the differing potentials that we see when we we are able to begin to understand uh, genes uh, genes big question uh, so humans vary a lot uh, and they vary in many different ways some of those ways are very sort of striking and um, early onset diseases that some people unfortunately have um, other way and other and most people don't others are sort of propensity to get complex diseases like um, cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's. Uh, some are to do with uh, behavioral traits, like whether you like to work in the morning or, or the evening. So people vary in many different ways. Uh, and what we've learned, I think, from the, um, the amazing amount of uh, research that's gone into the genetic basis of human phenotypes and human diseases is essentially that genetics contributes to everything. Um, there is a genetic component to, you know, uh, whether you like nodding on a on a Zoom call or not, um, <laughs> pointing at the person who's nodding in the corner. <laughs> um, 
so genetics contributes to everything. It can contribute, though, in many, many different ways, some of which are very direct, some of which are very indirect and complicated. So, so the most direct ones are, of course, where, you know, like hemophilia or sickle cell disease, where there's a, a particular type of mutation which affects a, a molecular trait, a cellular trait that ultimately gives you disease. And there's basically the disease is 100% genetics and there's almost no um, environmental influence on that at all. But those are, uh, those are many of the rare diseases are like that. Um, what we call Mendelian diseases, which have very striking patterns of inheritance within families, and that's how they were picked up and ultimately the, how the genes were found. But the vast majority of traits um, are really the result of a much more complex interplay between genetics and environment and exposure and history. Um, and uh, one of the great advances, I'd say, since the completion of the human genome was the development of technologies and experimental designs which allowed us to really probe into the genetic basis of these traits. So people have been studying things like heritability and how much genetic contributes to, to, to traits and disease for a long period of time. And they've known that uh, for many diseases or many traits, genetics is 50% you know, or so responsible. Um, but what we've come to understand, I think, since... The, our ability to probe the, um, the genome is, is really how the architecture is really very, very spread across the genome. So if you take cardiovascular disease, for example, there's not one trait, there's not one gene that increases your risk. There are thousands and thousands of um, places in your genome which can increase your risk. Now, some of those might be very direct because, for example, they're involved in, those are variants in some of the enzymes that process cholesterol and therefore if you've got a slightly wonky version of this gene you tend to have high cholesterol and we know cholesterol is bad for um uh, for heart disease but some of those might be very subtle like they influence whether or not you um enjoy smoking or or whether or not you really get, just can't bother to go for a run in the morning um, so those those are do influence your risk of cardiovascular disease, but they're doing it moderately and directly. And then there's a, a, one of the huge, um, I think, very cool findings in the last few years has been about how gen the genes that are not even in you can influence your risk mm -hmm. of disease, but, but they're not in you, but they're in your, your parents or your siblings because you know, you're in an environment, the environment influences your risk of disease, uh, there are a lot of influences on that environment. They're not random, these things, and they're influenced by um, our parents and our siblings, and they carry genes with, as well, and those genes will influence how they create those environments and the environments they make for us. And so you get this sort of second-order contribution to a genetic risk to a disease, which is, it is genetic, but it's not even going through me. So I, I think that's... For me, that's one of the most amazing things that the, the genome has allowed us to do is to sort of see all these different layers between a, a disease or a human trait and the, the very broad range of and very often very subtle genetic influences. Adam, 
Yeah, so just just following on just from following what, on from what Gil was saying there, which is 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 you know absolutely spot on. It's even more striking uh, with some the emergence of an of a of an I, what I think is going to be a very exciting field in the last couple of years, and this is largely coming out of um, Sarah's campus, so at Embles, and not not actually Sam Sanger. Um, and it's social genetic in influence. So now this has to, I have to stress that so far this is in mice and I don't think it's been done in, in humans yet, but the actual effect of the genetics, the genome, the genotype of a social interaction can be more significant than the genome that you actually bear yourself. Now that, that seems like an absolutely nutty thing to say. The first time I I, I heard that as saw, saw that as, as a result in a paper, Emily Bird is the lead author on that. She's at Emble, um, and I thought, well, that you know, that's completely bonkers. You're saying there's a, there's a bigger genetic influence on your behaviour from genes that are not even you're not even related to, but are part of your social ne social network. And I suppose, you know, I remember talking to her about this a couple of years ago and, and we were trying to speculate about what this might, you know, try to give an example for humans. And I think one of the ones that works quite well is that, um, so for example, being a night owl or, or an early riser has a, has a significant genetic contribution to it. So if you're, if you're someone who stays up till two o'clock in the morning, there is a, there's a significant genetic influence to that or vice versa. If you like getting up at 6.30 and going for a run, as, as Gil said, um, now, if, if you're one and your partner is the other, then it's quite possible that you will modify your behavior in order to align itself with your partner's behavior, which is the opposite phenotype, right? And so you might, you know, tr try your best to be a late riser if your partner is a, is a, a late riser or night owl or whichever way around it is. And so in that, in that example, potentially, because this is a speculative example, it may be that the genetics of someone else is more significant than the phenotype that you are displaying than your own genetics. Now, we're just beginning to explore that in humans. In mice, you see it in, in many different characteristics to do with uh, wound healing and licking behavior and nursing behavior. And, and it, the, the, the impact seems to be quite striking. I think we will see how significant it is in, in humans in the next few years as those studies get done. But I think it, it's just yet another example of, well, two things. One, as Sarah alluded to, we're just at the beginning of this. This, you know, exploring the genome is 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 going to go on for all of us are going to be employed for a long time yet. Um, and the second thing is the complexities of understanding our genome is only part of understanding our place in the environment and now understanding our genome's relationship with other genomes that don't even have any sort of biochemical interaction with each other, but still have an effect on on our behavior. I mean, it's it's. It's kind of nuts, but it, that's what makes it so cool. Uh, one day Where we'll do a phrase, I think you'll find it's more complex than that, is not required. <laughs> but that never happens, does it? There's no easy... This is why, so, uh, apart from cosmology, man, cosmology <laughs> seems so simple when you just deal with holographic principles on, uh, on, on the surfaces of black holes. Um, Sarah, I wanted to ask about uh, some of the kind of more... Well, the specific work you do, which I, I, I now worry because I remember once talking with Adam where he said more often than not when they say humans, what the research paper really means is mice. So I'm now worried that when I say, so, you know, the, the human cell atlas and you go, well, to be fair, it's a mouth. Um, 
the, the your work on the human cell atlas, which it just that again in terms of the magnitude of the task, can you tell us a little bit about you know the, the the starting point of this and and what you what your ambitions are in terms of of what you hope to discover with the human cell atlas? Sure, sure. So um, the starting point was um, these this the resolution revolution in genomics which is basically the um, kind of explosion in single-cell genomics technologies that have happened over the past decade or so. Uh, and, and that basically means that, that we're now able to measure the nucleic acid content of individual cells or even nuclei in, in a massively high-throughput, paralyzed manner um, you know, for, 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 uh, with dropping costs and that, that's what that that sort of um, revolution in genomics to be able to measure DNA or RNA in single cells is really what um, kind of uh, gave a huge boost to this whole whole movement. And um, and so that's that's uh, that's gone hand in hand with incredible technology developments in in spatial genomics and high throughput, massively parallel imaging methods in situ sequencing and so on, so that we can also study cells within their tissue context. And when I say tissue context, I am talking about human tissues. Um, so absolutely, the human cell atlas is about, you know, human cells and tissues. And, and that obviously begs the question of where the, you know, you're probably thinking, well, where do you get the, the human cells and tissues from? And it's basically um, three different types of sources. It's either biopsies from, from living patients or tiny, tiny little bits of tissue, you know, a millimeter or a couple of millimeters cubed, or it's resection material um, from, from, from operations, basically discarded tissue from, from operations, from often tissue that's, that's a normal, that's adjacent to a tumor, for instance, or a diseased section of, a, of an organ, or it's tissue from deceased transplant donors. And... Um, these these are uh, you know it sounds strange but it's actually very fresh tissue because they're they're essentially biochemically still alive um, because you know they've just been extubated when the when the explants take place and and so so there are those three different types of tissue sources uh, it, it, you know, generally um, now the technologies are allowing studies of human tissue um, that have been preserved for long periods of time so there's also Things like FFP, you know, tissue from biobanks that have been preserved in and formalin fixed um, that, that that we use for for the project. Um, so that's that that you know that's a little bit of context. It is a, a a hugely ambitious project. I mean, you know, looking back, I, th I sort of think like, what you know, what were we thinking uh, five five six years ago? Um, but the, you know, the ambition is to really cover all of the fifty tissues in our body. And to map them and chart them and understand them at that level of cellular detail, at uh, mapping at the, the comprehensively using genomics technologies, and and so what that means is basically gaining an understanding of all the different cell types and cell states of the tissues and organs in our body, um, understanding how they sit next to each other in their microenvironments in the tissues. And, and, and also how they're mapped within the bigger structure of organs. So you can kind of think of it in a, in a hierarchical way where you're 
when you've got your your entire organ, your heart, your liver, your kidney, and then um, you've got your different tissue microenvironments. You know, and the heart. We've obviously got four chambers and valves and and, and septum and, and and vessels and so on, and um, and then ultimately you're drilling down to your the cells and the the, the little microenvironment that they sit in, in terms of um, you know how the cardiomyocytes or epithelial cells sit next to vessels and immune cells and, and, and fibroblasts, stromal cells, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it, yes, it's, it's hugely ambitious. You're absolutely right. Um, I mean, what's, what's incredibly, and, and, you know, but what's, what's very exciting is that it is a, a global community effort. And so that's something that's very special about this genomics project. I think compared to previous consortia that it's, you know, we, we now have more than 2000 members from um, almost 75 countries around the world that are participating, um, you know, contributing data, developing technologies, developing computational methods. Um, it's, it, there are many, many different funders that contribute small or large amounts. So it's also very kind of uh, grassroots and distributed in that sense. And, um, uh, and the coordination, uh, again, takes place in a distributed manner. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, uh, sort of bringing together that Aviv Regev, who's my my partner in crime and has been from the very beginning, you know, uh, she she is at the Broad and is just about to move to Genentech, and and we do a lot of coordination, but with the help of many many different uh, people who chair working groups focused on technologies or on um, particular organs and tissues, organs you know systems like the immune system and so on. So it's a very um, it's a community driven effort, and all the the coordination is essentially a sort of voluntary co coordination amongst the scientists, and so um, and 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 the, the that that actually works. It turns out that that works. You know, there are, there are many millions of cells from from you know thousands of samples, different donors from over a dozen different organs in the data coordination platform um, that's publicly available at data.humancelloutlast.org. You know, for everybody to browse, um, the 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 project is really um, you know it's been going for less than four years, so it's really in the very early phases, and that's from from right from from the inception at the very beginning, kind of the first meeting in London in October 2016, but we're now already at the point where, you know, there's a kind of rough, very very rough scaffold of of cells from different tissues. And um, they're now increasingly even being put into their spatial context. So See, that's it's, uh, the progress has been quite astonishing. What I love See, that's about, what, again, well, before I was bigging up cosmology, but the trouble is sometimes it's very hard to picture things at Planck time, etc. Whereas when I watch some of your lectures and, you know, and, and when you're talking about topography and you're talking about, you know, the visual element of, of understanding, as you're saying, the scaffolding and the structure, I, th I think is, uh, it, 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 there are kind of Damascene moments in terms of understanding ourselves and, and, and living things on Earth. Um, Gil, I wanted to ask you about your, your research, because I know that... Uh, some of what you I, I saw your great ted lecture by the way which is uh thousand uh genomes thousand stories uh and uh um i think it was a thousand i may well have done that again by a factor of 10 i seem to be having a habit of doing that no, that's the correct number well, oh, thank heavens but i always what i really want to talk about before we run out of time is is the um 
how you are using this new understanding and this incredible speed. I mean, you basically say that you can now uh, you you can map a genome overnight. So so an individual for what's it is it three thousand pounds approximately? You, you uh, overnight you 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 can map out their genome. Yes, it, it's even cheaper than that now. Um, so technology technology has really been the the partner in crime with genomics so many of the revolutions that have made um the science possible have been driven by amazing sort of engineering advances that have uh, enabled us to either sequence dna or pull out single cells or you know amplify tiny tiny amounts of, of dna um and uh, Really, the, the engine of it has been the DNA sequencing uh, technologies, which are just amazing. Um, the throughput and the cost has dropped enormously. So the first human genome costs, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's, you know, it's a billion-ish, I think, to, to produce three. Okay, three billion. Um, you know, and to, today you can have your genome sequenced basically overnight. It depends a bit on the scale and so on, but, you know, for under a thousand, definitely. Um, and what that's allowed us to do is to start to produce these foundational data sets that chart genomic variation at the truly populational scale. So um, in my field, I'm interested in understanding how genetic uh, influences uh, affect disease risk and what we how we can use that information to either identify people who are at incredibly elevated risk for say cardiovascular disease or common cancers um, I'm also interested in using it to try and understand human biology and use that to identify new opportunities for therapeutic intervention um, so it's one type of population that we can now really probe with these technologies. But Sarah's uh, populations of cells are another type of population. You know, we can we it used to be that genomics was a field where you did tiny little samples because of the cost of of the experiments and their complexity. But now, it, it, you know, there's this amazing project going on in the UK called the UK Biobank, which is currently sequencing the genomes of half a million people. And that's that's just amazing. Um, in 20 years, we, we've gone from one to a million, basically. Um, so that the, the important thing for me is that the scale is critical because when you're trying to uncover patterns in biology, many of them are very subtle and, and complex. They don't sort of jump out at you. You need huge sample sizes and very rich data types on the scale of hundreds of thousands of observations to really see what's going on. And, and, and then you start seeing the patterns fall apart and then you can integrate the sort of data you get in the biobank with the sort of data that Sarah's been generating to understand where disease risk lies, which tissues are, does it reside in, what are the cell types that are important, what are the molecular functions that are, are going wrong, and that's the sort of fuel that allows you to do things like identify new uh, drug targets. So for, for me, the, so the key thing is essentially it's a technology-driven ability to scale in a way that we couldn't before. I've got, oh, Adam, yes, if you'd like to. I've got a question that's just come in for you. But uh, please uh, add if you would like. 
Oh, it's just, it's just, oh, it's just, it's just, just going to add, add to that by saying that you know the the, the trajectory of genomics from that, uh, well, from from twenty years ago with the beginning of the human genome project or the first draft of the human genome project based on one person, but even before that, when we were identifying individual genes, often for the common diseases or the Mendelian diseases, what we were finding is common variants so th things things that are that they vary between people but they can be identified relatively easily because there aren't that many differences now i think what in the last 10 years more than um more, more than at any other time and what a lot, a lot of the way that this is going which is why people like gill need very very large data sets is that what we're finding is that a lot of the uh, heritability, a lot of the, the disease risk or behavioral risks for a relationship between a genotype and a phenotype are actually hidden in rare variants, right? So things that vary between bits of genes and bits of non-coding DNA that, that vary between uh, people at a very much lower frequency. And they're hard to find. They're, they're hard to find because they're rare. And yet what we're finding more and more is that they are going to account for enormous amounts of the biology that we consider to be important or that we want to discover. And the only way you can get around that is by getting more genomes, by getting find, finding more rare variants, by looking at um, as many genomes as you can possibly get your hands on. I mean, I think there is a genuine case, and I, I, I talk about it in that book, that I, I, the same chapter that I, I showed that betting book, there's a genuine scientific case for sequencing everyone's DNA, a full genome sequence from birth as, as a standard, as part of you know, the NHS. There's a lot of ethical concerns with that. There's a lot of data security concerns with that and privacy concerns with that. And you know, all of those conversations are happening and need to continue to happen. But from a scientific point of view, I think that a lot of us think that that, that is how we're gonna understand human evolution, human variants, behavioral genetics, disease genetics, cancers, you know, the, the whole shebang, why we are the way we are. Well, we will, Sarah, uh, Gil, uh, we, we will talk towards the end about ethics as well. So I'll just, just throw that out there now. But Adam, we've got a question which uh, is, is for you. This is a question from AI, and I really genuinely hope it is some AI. I hope it's <laughs> AI that's passed its Turing test. So AI, congratulations, and we will send the certificate. Um, how do we improve our scientific language when we talk about race? Well, that's a that's a great well, question. that's a that's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer to that in a definitive way. So, one of the things I talk about a lot is human variation in relation to the social construct of race, which is which is one of the things that the Human Genome Project, more than anything else, has shown, is that race is a is a is a social idea. It is a consensus the way we talk about race, rather than a biological biologically encoded, meaning genetically encoded, uh, classification system. And I, well, the truth is we don't really have the language to talk about the complexities of genomics at all. And there's a, there's a sort of deep stem to this, which is we don't really have the language to talk about data sets of, the human genome is the most complex data set that we have ever come across so far and will be like that for, for a, a long time yet. Um, we don't really teach probability or risk, um, particularly probability in relation to genetics at a school level. And the narrative of genetics is 
um, is is the thing we were talking about at the beginning of this of this show, which is you know one gene for one thing. You've got a gene for blue eyes or brown eyes, which seems that's still in the syllabus, right? It's sort of true some of the time, um, but and when I teach GCSE or A level students, I, I feel you know I have to tell them answer what the textbook says because you're not going to get the marks if you say what is actually what we know, which is that it's some it's partly true some of the time. Um, but that's genetics. That's the reality of genetics. This stuff is wickedly complex. And so when it comes to, to issues like race, which have a very political and very sensitive aspect to them, um, especially given that our understanding of race has a historical trajectory, which is absolutely rooted with the birth of science, um, subsequently the emergence of anthropology, from which you get the emergence of genetics only a hundred and hundred and so years ago. And we're really just, we're only, you know, a few decades out of that era. And we've got some definitive answers in there, but, you know, taxonomizing things is so culturally, it, it's such, so part of the human condition. And one of the things I say in my lectures quite a lot is that, you know, e evolution is particularly as expressed in genomics in the human genome has unfolded over four billion years and never had any intention of being deciphered, right? It had no foresight there. And so the reason these guys have got uh, a lifetime's work ahead of them is because it, it, there is no, there's, there, there's really no structure to it. We don't really have an agreed definition of what a gene is. And yet we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of geneticists all, all around the world talking about genes every single day. And that's the thin end of the wedge. Anyway, the question wasn't about that. So the, the answer is, I don't know. We talk about populations, we talk about ethnicities, we talk about ancestral populations. We, in our databases, such as UK Biobank, uh, we have problems which are effectively aspects of structural racism because we, we know much more about the genomes of European people than we do about the, Europe, the genomes of um, anyone else on earth, particularly people from Africa for whom their genomes have more diversity in them than everyone else in the rest of the world put together. So there are these massive problems. We don't quite, you know, you still read papers by geneticists which say, uh, which talk about, um, well, well, extrapolate data when actually what they mean is white Europeans or talk about Caucasian populations, which is a sort of meaningless, weird term that needs to be absolutely abandoned possibly decades ago. But I don't know what we replace that language with. Um, and, and that's an active conversation that, that, that we're having in, in genetics at the moment. So it's a great question, Al. Um, and the answer is we don't really know, but we're thinking about it very hard. Thanks. The, uh, I think one of the great books about looking, not, not specifically about genetics, but in terms of looking at that, the desire to go this measurement, I want it to fit exactly with what I believe is Stephen Jay Gould's book, uh, Mis Mismeasure of Man, uh, which was about the uh, desire to find very specific differences in brain size. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very good book looking at uh, the kind of... Uh, well, yes, the the highly flawed uh, research methods that we used. Um, Sarah, what are you, in terms of we were talking about ethics there, and do you have with, within your areas of research and around that, are there any areas you think we really need to be talking more and more about what the ethics are and what our understanding is and how sometimes, as we know, with any interesting science, 
often in the media they'll read one sentence of that paper and they'll publish that so what is there anything you're particularly wary of in terms of uh misunderstanding standing well i so i agree with adam that um that there are vast differences in in i'll say the density of research in different types of human populations or human samples and that's one of the things that we have an eye on and and we're sort of actively uh, trying to to steer against in the human cells community and and that is to include um to you know to try to include as much genetic diversity as possible in our samples and and we're very lucky that there are funders who funded uh, human cells projects focus precisely on that basically covering genetic diversity in different contexts um, profiling using single cell genomics to profile blood samples from populations around the world or populations in one city you know uh, of, of different um, different genetic backgrounds samples of different genetic backgrounds donors of different genetic backgrounds and so on so I mean that's that's one thing that that's uh, talked about and and we're very conscious of precisely because of the bias that the quite frankly biomedical research I don't think it's just genetics it's it's biomedical research in general um, has has focused more on some populations than others um, and and then the second thing you know which is different is also inclusion of scientists a diversity of scientists um, you know. Uh, both again, kind of global geographic inclusion um, of scientists um, engaging different communities, but also, um, you know, be just being aware of of, of inclusion, even in in, in um, you know Europe, UK, North America, and so on. And you know, I just had an email earlier about, uh, for instance, black women in computational biology. Um, a kind of special interest group, which is just a fantastic, you know, fantastic uh, community that's that's basically uh, supporting each other, and um, you know, which many of us are are allied to, and um, you know, so we're trying to to strengthen our community by including. Uh, diverse scientists and diverse samples, and we think that that will make the make the community, the scientific community and the scientific project um, much stronger and of higher quality, basically. Um, Gil, what, what do you think are the, in terms uh, of um, the, the, the major ethical issues? Uh, I mean, I agree that I agree that equity is probably one of the most important uh, ethical issues in that, um, you know, we want the advances in medicine and healthcare that are that come from our ever increasing genomic understanding to be shared equally by everyone. But as Adam pointed out, you know that research is not uni not well distributed across the world, and there are there are very good reasons why um, we think that doing research in one particular type of locality may not translate 100% into other localities. So equity is a very important one. Other people have touched on that, so I don't want to spend lots more time on it. I think the other big 
um, it's an ethical issue is around data and data sharing, data access. Um, you know, the world we work in uh, is, is only made possible by our ability to access very rich data that links the genomic information on, on very large numbers of individuals to very rich information on their, their, their health and their disease and their treatment, their outcome. Um, and so what you worry about, what I worry about is the sort of data protectionism that can creep in, you know, like you can't access my, my data, it's special. One of the things that's made genetics as a field really stand out, I think, is it's um, uh, the way it has, it has not fallen into that trap. Certainly, it was driven very much by a, a culture of um, openness and access projects like the Thousand Genomes Projects or the Human Cell Atlas or the, the Human Genome Project originally, they've all effectively been open data projects, which has been fantastic. And I think one of the one of the things that we need to have greater clarity on is as we start putting more and more information onto a genome, like you know, my entire healthcare records and what I had for breakfast, um, what's the right way of thinking about who should get access to those data uh, and under what terms? You know, should they pay for it? Should they get it for free? What's my right? What are my rights within that? And there, some of that, I think, is has you know, you, we can take good principles from things like GDPR and so on. But I think there's a much wider um, societal question about what rights what rights does society essentially have around accessing your data on this kind of scale in order to drive this this type of research? So that's the other thing I'd identify. We're near the end now, so I was. We've actually managed to get through the whole thing without um, talking about COVID nineteen. So, which is, uh, but I will briefly. But we don't have to talk about this. Uh -huh. No, Adam. No, 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 no. We, we've uh, the uh, um, Adam has done some very interesting stuff on that, which I highly recommend you look up and you will uh, see uh, both writing and broadcast. Um, but uh, we, you can talk about this to an extent, which I'd like to ask all of you in terms of your ambitions for when we are facing uh, battles in human health. Uh, and I wondered what, you know, the, the hopes of current research in, in, in genetics, in genomics, what, where you hope we will be uh, and what you hope are going to be uh, the possible breakthroughs. So, Adam, can I start with you? Adam, can I start with you on that? Yeah, sure. And I sort of want to pick up from something that, that Gil was just saying there as well, which is that something which I don't think anyone really anticipated happening uh, in the last you know, 20 or 30 years was the enormous commercial potential uh, for, um, uh, well, for, for monetizing people's genomes, which has occurred through um, primarily for companies that are expressing interest in in um, ancestry, uh, genetic genealogy, and um, you know these are twenty three me or ancestry.com and I and I I don't you know it's not I'm not in the business of telling people how to spend their money. I think that the tests themselves are uh, are of trivial interest. The results are mostly of trivial interest, and and they also do something which is I think we've been arguing against or trying to teach against for the last thirty odd years, which is that kind of genetic determinism that. Uh, 
um, which which is is not the way geneticists think about the relationship between genes and, and behavior these these days. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm I'm sort of generally opposed to them, whilst recognizing that they have some some sort of trivial value to them. But what I think is more significant is that companies specifically, such as Twenty Three and Me, are there they're, they're their fundamental interest is not in ancestry, it is in commercializing people's genomes. And the, the amazing trick that they have successfully pulled off is getting people to pay to give their most private data to a company who subsequently are going to monetize it by selling it on to pharmaceutical companies in order to develop drugs which subsequently will be sold back to them. Now. I, I don't want to sound like I'm sort of hugely politically motivated by saying this. I sort of think it's astonishing because when people buy those kits, they're not the client, they are the product. And you can opt out. And I suggest that if you, if you are interested in, in taking an ancestry test and just caveat mTOR your way through this and make sure you know what you're getting into. Um, my main problem with that whole process is not the generation of new science or potentially new drugs that will help people. It is that all of this is happening behind closed doors, right? And the whole of the human genome project, Sarah, Sarah's, she's, she's caveating that. I think she's right too. But because there are commercial partnerships with, um, with the public sector as well. But the whole human genome project was set up as an open data uh, exercise the free information, the free in exchange of information by default for in perpetuity. Um, and I think that science progresses best when there is a full free flow of, of information, uh, which genomics has done so well for so many decades. It bugs me now that the largest data sets for human genomes in the world are not in UK Biobank or the 100,000 Genomes Project or Genomics UK or any of the publicly owned databases, but they're owned by 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Um, I, I think that is suboptimal for the progress of science and therefore the understanding of, uh, of how humans work. Um, Sarah, so... so, so you know, you're, you're right to sort of caveat, absolutely. I'd say it's it's to me it's it's you know they're not complete genomes, and the taxpayer I think or even large philanthropic funders are probably still bigger funders than the private sector in terms of um, being able to to be a motor of biomedical research and fund open science and so on. So I you know I but there's also you know, glass half empty, half empty, glass half full. I'd sort of put things in perspective. The, the other the other point that, that I'd like to pick up on is that it's not just the genetic domain. I think we're only slowly waking up to privacy issues. So we are also the product of our data, you know, in social media, in um, mm. shopping, even, you know, physical shopping or online shopping. Or we're giving away our data all the time and not doing those opt-outs because they take too much time or they're not, they're not explicit and so on and so forth. So I think it's only very, very slowly that we are, as a society, we're realizing the value of the data about ourselves in, in all different domains. It's not just the genetics. You know, it's, I mean, this is kind of, you know, we're giving away something about ourselves in this, in this very program, in the, you know, the pictures of our houses and so on, and, and where we are at this very point in time. Right. Well, well, you laugh, but it. I mean, that's 
that's you know that's part of it um and so it's um so i think it's it, we have to become more aware and have a conversation about how to how to deal with that and what is it that we actually want because maybe we want to give away our data to the company because we think it's a good cause you know some people may feel that way most people probably haven't thought it through but there may genuinely be some people who think that there may be others who who want to charge money and um you know the people have to we have to be more explicit and give p and, and have a uh, um pathways for for um having those options rather than there just not being any option um and, and but that's something that's the society as a whole i think is 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 sort of living through that conversation i mean in terms of in terms of um you know sort of leaps of science in genomics um i think there's there's the the, the basic genome sequencing of every person of course you know and and personally i think that will have the biggest impact in pediatric and neonatal medicine um, you know, and the, the diseases that penetrate extremely quickly after birth and, and, and are sort of devastating Mendelian disorders need to be diagnosed quickly, you know, and then, and then slowly, possibly throughout life. Um, and, you know, what I see sort of uh, going forward is, is, of course, cell atlas technologies becoming part of mainstream medicine, just the way genome sequencing has, you know, over the last 20 years. So we would be, you know, single cell sequencing blood samples, tissue samples, um, sequencing tissue sections of biopsies, and and basically being able to diagnose diseases in a in, in detail in ways that we've never been before. Be able to engineer tissues for regenerative medicine based on those templates that we have now of in vivo tissues, and be able to patch and fix broken organs and tissues by simply making copies that are based on the in vivo templates. Um, so those are the kinds of um, things that I'm looking forward to in my lifetime, let's say 20 years from now. Gil, you, uh, in terms of your work, in terms of uh, targeting drugs, et cetera, but what, what, what are you hoping we're, we're getting close to in terms of breakthroughs in this in area? Breakthroughs in this area? Uh, I think the, the area I, what I want to see the most, and Sarah alluded to there, is essentially being able to integrate genomic information genuinely into healthcare. I actually don't think we've done it at all, really. We've got, we sort of scratched the surface with genomic medicine programs, but that's really focused on people who've got disease and the diagnostic problem. I think that genetics is now at a point where the predictive information about risk that you can get by looking at someone's genome is a useful thing to to know you know i we can identify women at risk of breast cancer uh, at an incredibly elevated risk of breast cancer not because they've got one of these really strong familial diseases but they just happen to have got really unlucky in the thousands of small effect variants that influence your risk of getting that disease. That information, I think, should be being used today within healthcare. We know how to sort of bring that into screening programs. We can do similar things in cardiovascular disease. 
Um, and there are lots of other diseases where that information now genuinely can be used uh, in a preventative way rather than a uh, responsive way. So that's the thing I really want to see. But it's it's part of this bigger story, I think, of translating you know the research that was made possible by the sequencing of the genome right through to something that will impact um, individuals' lives. Brilliant. Thank you all Thank you very much to uh, Sarah Gill and Adam. And uh, I think under this as well, at some point, we'll, we'll try and put up some links as well to other lectures that they've done so you can find out more about the work and more about the things that they're doing. Thank you very much to the Genetics Society, the Milner Centre for Evolution. Uh, Adam, it's been very interesting because there's just enough lighting on the landing to know that some of your family have got the night owl gene for sure. Uh, I don't <laughs> think they followed your pre-show instructions of going to bed. Um, and uh, don't forget the uh, Sunday Science Q&A on on cosmic shambles that we, we do that every uh 3 p.m every sunday 3 p.m in the in that that's uh uh in terms of british summertime and uh thank you very much joining us thank you very much to trent burton for producing this and uh, we'll be back with another genetic shambles in two weeks time thank you thank you bye <laughs>